Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Week 8 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Zamini. I cover the Jets for ESPN, the 0-7 Jets, as everybody listening to this is certainly aware of. The march to 0-16 continues, and the march to the apparent number one pick in the 2021 draft continues. Yes, the Trevor Lawrence buzz is getting louder every week. And in the second quarter, we'll talk to someone who knows a lot about Trevor Lawrence, someone who knows a lot about Joe Douglas as well. Our guest this week is NFL Network draft analyst Daniel Jeremiah, a former Ravens scout who worked with Joe Douglas in Baltimore. I've uh, admired his work from afar, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him in the second quarter. Before we get to that, Instead of rehashing another typical jet loss, 18 to 10 to the Bills on Sunday, let's just really touch on the bullet points, what we know about what's going on with this team from the game and looking ahead a little bit. And the number one bullet point surrounding the team right now is the fact that Adam Gase relinquished the play calling on Sunday. He let uh, offensive coordinator Dowell Loggins handle the play calling against the Bills. And that was... Pretty significant, in my opinion. Adam Gase has been calling plays in the NFL since 2013, never missed a game. It really is his identity. I mean, it's how he made his bones in this league as a play caller. And for him to sacrifice that, to give it up, really says a couple of things. One, uh, it just shows you how desperate the Jets are right now. And two, maybe it's a last-ditch attempt on his part to save his job. He certainly trusts Dowell Loggins. They've been together for a while, so it's not like he handed it off to a stranger. Uh, he had minimal involvement in the game plan, he said. Minimal to no involvement in the actual play calling on game day. So this was a pretty big step by Adam Gase. He seemed to be pretty satisfied with the results on Monday, saying that he was pleased with the way things went with Loggins. And I, I agree you know, for 15 minutes, 18 minutes of that game, the Jets actually looked like they had a pulse on offense, but then it just fell apart. I mean, they could not do anything in the second half. They, and this stat just blows my mind. They had four total yards in the second half. That is the worst half for the Jets in terms of fewest yards in 40 years. 40 years. And they get four total yards. That I mean, it's really hard to wrap your brain around that. Uh, that's like two Marcus Mays. The Jets' safety is six feet tall, so if he fell over twice, that would be 12 feet, four yards. So that's that's really hard to comprehend. So in, in spite of that, in spite of being outcoached by Sean McDermott in the second half because Dowell Loggins had no adjustments whatsoever, in spite of all that, I think he may keep the play calling on Sunday against the Chiefs. Now, Adam Gase was noncommittal, saying they needed to talk about it. But everything reading between the lines, he sounded like he's willing to go in that direction again. You know, why not? I mean, he had some new pieces in there in Denzel Mims. They got Michael Pirine the ball a little bit more. And like I said, for three series, the Jets looked like they were, you know, knew what they were doing on offense. So I think... My hunch is that Adam will let Dowell give, get another shot at it and see what comes of it. Uh, it can't get any worse than four yards in the second half. Of course, the it's a step up in competition this week with Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium. 
that is a really, really tough spot to be in. Another issue I want to touch on is, uh, you know, the trading deadline is next Tuesday, election day, as it were, November 3rd. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of rumors over the next few days. Uh, you know, the guy attracting most of the rumors is Quinn and Williams. And that's really not a surprise. I wrote this a couple of weeks ago. I, I said the Jets are going to get calls on him. And they are. And from what I am told, they are not actively shopping him. And look, that is always a semantic thing. The difference between shopping and listening. Are they listening? Yes. Joe Douglas listens to everything. And we saw that with the Jamal Adams situation. But there is a subtle difference between listening and shopping. Like with Le'Veon Bell a couple of weeks ago, they were shopping him. You know, they were trying to trade him, ultimately couldn't and released him. I don't think they're actively seeking deals on Quinn and Williams. And, you know, does this mean they're not going to trade him? I think there's a chance they could trade him, but it would have to be more than a, a draft pick. I mean, unless it's a one, I don't think they'd get a one for him, but I think it's going to have to be more than a two. You know, he hasn't reached the level that the Jets had hoped. He's not a star not a dominant interior defensive lineman, but he's playing pretty well. He's only 22 years old, and he's under team control for two more years plus a fifth-year option. So that's a value to have. That's that's an asset. Yeah, he's getting better each week. He's actually third in the league in run-stop win rate. That's an analytics-driven stat that we have at ESPN and Next Gen Stats. You know, they have these tracking devices on the players and they can tell if a player beats his block in the running game. So he's third in the league in that category. And he's seventh in the league in pass rushing win rate among interior defensive linemen. And I'll name the six guys ahead of him. And it's a pretty good group. Grady Jarrett, Chris Jones, who the Jets will see on Sunday, Tyson Aluwalu. Malik Jackson, Fletcher Cox, and Quinton Jefferson, and then Quinton Williams. So he's seventh in pass rush win rate. Win rate. He's got three sacks. You know, right now he's on pace for what, six or seven sacks this year? That's pretty good for an interior defensive lineman. So, you know, he's not Aaron Donald. No one is. But he's still a solid player, a solid to good player who has value, and like I said, I don't think they should trade him unless they're just blown away. You can't trade every number one pick. you got to keep something there to build around. And here's a guy, you know what you got financially for the next two years. I would keep him. I think the Jets will keep him unless they're absolutely blown away by an offer. And honestly, I don't think that's going to be the case. So now we have the Chiefs coming up this week. This is a, uh, well, it goes without saying that this is a massive challenge for the Jets. They are 19 and a half points underdog. Did a little research on that. That is the third largest spread for the Jets in the Super Bowl era as an underdog. It happened last year, how quickly we forget, 2019 in week three. At New England, they were a 21-point dog and lost by 16 points, so they actually covered. And then in 2007, Week 15 at New England, they were also a 21-point dog, and they covered there too. They lost by 10. So this, you could say, is the first time in the Jets franchise history in the Super Bowl era that 
the biggest non-New England spread at 19, 19 and a half, I think it is. So it, it's a big number. Uh, you know, can they cover it? Their defense has been playing better this, you know, the last couple of weeks. So I think they could, you know, maybe hang around for a little bit. It depends on how motivated the Chiefs are. You know, they are top to bottom, a better team than the Jets in, in pretty much every area. And it's going to be really, really hard for the Jets if the if the Chiefs are focused and and really come to play, you know. But we'll see. That that is a big number, and it should be interesting what happens either way at Arrowhead on Sunday. Back in one second. And I'd like to welcome in our guest this week. He's from the NFL Network. He's their top draft analyst, Daniel Jeremiah. Thank you so much for joining us on Flight Deck. It's great to be with you, man. We've, uh, I feel like we've known each other for a long time without really knowing each other, which is uh, kind of how it works in this business, right? Yeah. So for the, for the listeners, of course, everybody knows who Daniel is. They've seen him on TV with his uh, draft stuff. But during, before the draft, Daniel and guys like Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay do conference calls with writers around the country to give us information on the draft. And so I know I've asked Daniel a number of questions over the years on those conference calls, but you really don't get to know a person on one of those because there's, there's literally probably like 50 writers on those things. Yeah, no doubt. But I do. I always look forward because you've always got good questions. I'm always have to be loaded for bear at, for that because I've got um, two, there's two Canada questions coming every year, come hell or high water. You're going to have to know the can like a couple Canada prospects. Right. So I, I, when they say, they tell you who's up to ask questions next. And when your name pops up, I'm like, okay, I, he's going to keep this in the fairway. I'm going to be just fine. <laughs> Usually asking about like a quarterback question or something like <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, I'm just fascinated because the, for the fans who don't know, Daniel was a scout uh, with the Eagles, Browns, and Ravens. And, you know, you had a really good career going there. And then you make the switch into the media, uh, I think in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, into NFL Network. Why did you decide to leave scouting and go into the media world? Well, I got a little taste of it. So when I was coming out of college, I worked for ESPN right out of college and was on the production side. I was a, uh, a production assistant from, for uh, Sunday night football. At the time, ESPN had Sunday night football. It was uh, Joe Theismann and, and uh, Mike Patrick and, uh, and uh, Paul McGuire on the broadcast at that time. So I did that for two years and then I uh, had never even thought about scouting, but just randomly happened to be doing a Ravens game. and was up in the press box before the game and uh, a guy by the name of TJ McCrate was a scout with the Ravens, happened to be my brother's college roommate. Um, and so I ran into him and we started talking. And then uh, he asked if I'd ever be interested in, in scouting because they might have an opening. And he introduced me to Phil Savage and to Ozzie Newsome. And I thought, wow, I've never thought about this. But yeah, why not? So that kind of led to the scouting career getting going. So I spent four years with the Ravens. Uh, Phil gets the GM job with the Browns. So I end up going with Phil um, for his last uh, two years there. We get blown out of there. Uh, we go 10 and six the first year I was there. The next year, I think we were four and 12. We all get let go. And then I have 18 months left on my contract. So I get offered a job with the Cardinals or I believe yeah, it was the Cardinals at that time. Timing wasn't right for me. I thought I'm going to work for free because I had an offset in my contract. So I said, maybe I'll just give this media thing a try. So I started a Twitter page that, and that kind of led to doing radio interviews, which led to some TV. And I really thought I was going to go on that path. And then you had the lockout. So uh, my uh, Randy Learner's my Randy Lerner scholarship was getting ready to expire uh, with those paychecks from the Cleveland Browns. So right. I, I needed to get a job. So that's when I took a job with the Eagles, went back into scouting. And halfway through my second year with them, my, my uh, broadcasting agent 
who I hadn't talked to in over a year. He said, Hey, I, I, you know, things are different now, you know, with the media world and I have opportunities for you with, you know, potentially with ESPN or NFL network, if you'd be interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time, I, my, I have four young kids and I thought, you know what, this, this will be a better family move for me. So after the draft was over, I went in and talked to Howie Roseman and told him about the opportunities that I had. And he was very cool about it. And so uh, that's when I made that move. You know, when the NFL Network lost Mike Mayock to the Raiders, I'm thinking to myself, ah, they're never going to be able to replace Mayock. He's so good at it. But, you know, you do such a good job. And I think, you know, you're, you're every bit as good as Mike. And the information that you put out is really insightful. Do you almost approach it as as if you're a scout, you know, who happens to be in the media, because that's the, the information comes out that way. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. I mean, I always hope that we would kind of be like the 33rd team to kind of take people behind the curtain and then, you know, show them what the evaluation process looks like. Sometimes it turns out well, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, that's the way it is with teams, as you know. So um, I've just tried to let people see the process of what goes into how you evaluate and how you rank these players. And I, I was fortunate that, you know, I had several years to, to kind of sit under Mike and learn how to do the media side of this thing, you know, so that was, uh, that was a great education for me and, and, and also got a great friend out of it because Mike uh, ended up being one of my best buds. So to, to be able to learn from him and, and then now to see him go on and, and go back into my old world, it's kind of funny how it all just kind of uh, flipped upside down. Flipped the script a little. Uh, so on the course of your scouting career, you mentioned Baltimore with Phil yep. Savage there. Of course, he's now with the Jets, kind of like a senior advisor. And you come across a guy named Joe Douglas when you're in Baltimore. And I know you guys are still friendly and, you know, Jet fans are, you know, very high on Joe. He's only been on the job for about a year and a half. Yeah. What, what can you tell me about Joe? What do you got to learn about him back in the day? And, and you know, what kind of relationship do you guys have now? Yeah, Joe, Joe's is just a great guy. I mean, he's he's just easy to get along with. Um, you won't find anybody that's worked with Joe at any point in time that doesn't have uh, that has a bad word to say about him because he just treats everybody well. Uh, we used to play basketball together all the time. I know people might, might not not believe that, but Joe is actually he's a good athlete, and uh, you know we used to play a lot of two on two hoops together. So I kind of inherited. I came in after him and kind of inherited his old job. So when I first got to the Ravens, Joe was the Turk, you know, had to do the cut downs at, at, at training camp. So that's the worst part of the job. So you inherited that, you know, the, the menial tasks of airport runs and running copies for, for Ozzie Newsome and doing all that grunt work. So Joe kind of let us, me and Jeremiah Washburn came at the same time. Jeremiah is now with the Philadelphia Eagles, um, who's coached for a long time. His dad is Jim Washburn, who's a kind of legendary defensive line coach. Um, but me and Jeremiah came at the same time. And so, you know, we, we ended up kind of learning from Joe how to, how to do that job. And Joe was, Joe, I think Joe genuinely liked us, but I think the fact that we were taking all these crappy tasks off his hands, that it made him like us even more uh, at that point in time. But we've, you know, we worked together for a long time there. And then, uh, you know, we see each other at all the, all the scouting events, the all-star games and combine and, and uh, keep in touch on a regular basis. You said you played two on two basketball with him. He, he, and my, he probably was the enforcer, right? I mean, he was the guy who was in the paint. Let's say, yeah, throwing some bodies around, you know, throwing some elbows and so forth. Yeah, he was the Rick Mahorn. He was the Rick yeah. Mahorn of the yeah. uh, of the Baltimore Ravens scouting staff. I could see that. So, uh, what kind of job do you think he's done so far in New York? Well, I think he he went into a pretty challenging situation um, when you kind of look at what was in place there. Um, 
and you look at just where the resources have been allocated, you know, there's, there's a salary cap sports. So you've got, you know, you don't have infinite resources. So it's how you allocate those resources. And I think when, you know, philosophically kind of how he was trained and brought up, you invest in different positions. Um, so it was different. It, he walked into a different spot there. Um, but I mean, I think he'd be the first to admit this. I think he's had, you know, look at Mekhi Becton, I think, you know, in his one draft that he's had there is a home run. I mean, he's got a chance to be the best left tackle in all of football. So he's got his wins. And I'm sure he'd tell you that he's, you know, in, in free agency, um, he have some that he'd like to have back. You know, that's just, that's just how it goes. But I knew it was going to be challenging for him from the standpoint of the market you're going into. Obviously, that's, that's, it's difficult. But to come in after a draft, right? So you're going to get credit for a season that really doesn't have your, your, your fingerprints on it. You know, you haven't had a chance to really add to this roster. Um, and now the results aren't there, but I think you can start to see, you know, some of these guys he brought in, particularly in the draft, you can see how he wants to build a team. Um, you know, the Jamal Adams trade, nobody's going to know the winner of that thing until we get four years, five years down the road to see what he does with all these picks. But he needed to take some resources that were invested in some non-premium positions to create assets so he can go out and fill premium positions. Because when you have a team that doesn't have big-time corners, doesn't have big-time pass rushers, you didn't have when he got there tackles, um, and you, you're still trying to figure out what you have in the quarterback. So that's a lot of question marks you've got to answer. Yeah, that's why I thought the Jamal trade was – I mean, you hate to lose a good player like that, but do you really want to invest 17 or $18 million a year in a, in a strong yeah. safety? I mean, you, you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. I mean, you just can't throw money because he's a popular player. I mean, so yeah. I'm, sure he, I'm sure he agonized over That was probably a pretty tough decision because I think he genuinely liked Jamal as a player. Yeah, and I, I think Jamal fit the Ravens' mentality. You know, yeah. like he fit the – he played with the type of energy that you, you really love. And that's why I didn't think he would have just, you know, I think some people, the narrative that some people put out there, not you, but others put out there, oh, Jamal, you know, he forced the Jets' hand and forced his way out of there. No, no, the, the Seattle Seahawks gave him an offer that was too good to be true, and so they took yeah. it. I mean, I, I don't think that they were running away from Jamal as much as this opportunity came to them, and they said, man, we, you know, this will give us an opportunity to fill some of those spots that, uh, that need to be filled. And then this past Sunday, I think you saw the glimpses of that 20 draft class starting to show up. Denzel Mims makes his yeah. debut. P. Ryan got the ball a lot. You know, finally, they, they gave him a chance to run the ball a little bit. Uh, Makai was back in the lineup. Uh, what, were you, what was it like seeing those guys on the field and what kind of upside do you think they have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting. I, you know, I think you want to see more of those guys. Obviously, some of it's been due to injury, so you can't, you can't fault that. But uh, – you know, I, I think you, you've got a chance to have the best left tackle in all football. Um, I think there's a real chance that happens here within the next year or two with Mekhi Becton, which should be exciting. Um, Denzel Mims, you know, I, a lot had been made about kind of the, the uh, you know, Robbie Anderson situation, Robbie Anderson leaving, and he's playing lights out and doing a wonderful job. But I always felt like kind of got to get a chance to see Denzel Mims on the field here and see – you know, how some of these replacements look before we, you know, make that final verdict on, on that move and that decision. And one half, I think he went four for 42 in the first half, showed you some of the speed and playmaking ability that he possesses. I think he's got a really bright future to be a, a really good number two uh, wide receiver. And then, you know, you see a little bit more Ashton Davis as you go along, see what he can do. Um, I know at Bryce Hall, the corner, it sounds like he, he's getting close uh, right. from Virginia to get out there. P. Ryan is starting to show you some flashes as he gets more, more playing time. So 
you know, that's, that's what's exciting. But the, the, to me, even more exciting is these next two drafts. Um, that's going to be, I mean, when you look at the roster as it is today versus what it's going to look like two years from now, it's going to consist of those two draft classes. And that'll determine whether the Jets can get it going or not. Well, let's let's turn the page and look at the future a little bit, because right now, you know, like my readers and listeners, and I'm sure you're getting it, you know, with, you know, your fans, Trevor Lawrence, if he's in the draft, which, he, you know, everyone thinks he will be, he's, I think he already said he, he'd be in the draft. Yeah. Is, is he, in your mind, the absolute lock number one? And what makes him so special? You know, I would have said over the – Summer, after studying him and Trey Lance and Justin Fields, I would have said, you know, yeah, he probably comes in in the pole position, but I thought Trey Lance was, was actually going to have a chance to push him for that. Now, since then, Trey Lance only got a chance to play one game this year, you know, which is going to limit his growth opportunities there. And I thought when you study Lawrence through what they've played, five, five or six games, whatever they've played, I think he's taken his game to even another level uh, this year with how he's playing and just confidence – um, making better decisions to go along with the unworldly, you know, arm strength, athleticism, playmaking ability he possesses. So he didn't finish strong last year. He'd be the first one to tell you, I think, if you, if you talk to him about it, the way that he finished up in the postseason, um, it wasn't his best. And it's hard when you're evaluating these guys because the Clemsons and the Ohio States, they're not going to be challenged much uh, in, in the regular season. They just play with such better players than everybody they play against. So, you almost put more weight on what they do in those bigger games. And we've seen Lawrence against Alabama as a freshman. I mean, that was his, that was like, whoa, okay, this dude is different. He's, he's the real deal. Last year wasn't quite as good. I think this year we're seeing the best version of Trevor Lawrence, which solidifies him as the overall number one pick and somebody that, you know, I, you know, you can get really excited about, about what the future could look like with somebody like that, no matter, you know, where he ends up. Now, if you're the Jets, I mean, look, they're 0-7 right now. You know, yeah. they're, a fa- they're a favorite to, to get the number one pick. If, if they get the number one pick, do you think they have to make that decision? Do you think they take Lawrence? You know, I, would, I can just answer from what I would do, and I would say based off what I know at this point in time, I think you have to take him. Um, it's a chance, and I love, and I'm a big Sam Darnold supporter. I, I right. was, you know, huge on him. I thought he was the best quarterback coming into that draft now he's found himself in a pretty crummy situation and it hasn't worked out. I'm still hopeful that he's going to, he's going to have a successful career, whether it's in New York, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But I think you've got a chance to get a next level, you know, type of a player here with Lawrence. That would be uh, that'd be too tough to pass up. Plus you get the benefits of the rookie contract and everything that comes along with that as well. Yeah. That, that's uh, a big point right there. You get to reset the clock on the rookie contract and it gives you another four years of flexibility whereas Sam would be going into his fourth year and starting to get into that bigger money and they might not want to pay it. Uh, you know, you hear the word generational thrown out a lot with Trevor Lawrence, and that is yeah. a big word. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty, pretty big expectation because when I think generational, I, I'm thinking like a, an Andrew Luck type of prospect or, yeah. or uh, you know, an Elway type of – is he in that category or are we, we got to tap the brakes a little bit there? I think I would slow that down just a little bit, but I, I get what people are saying. When you have guys like this, it's because they've kind of come on the radar as young players, and so it's been given time to build up. Um, and so that's when you end up getting all the hype to go along with him. But, I mean, he's a phenomenal player. But it's, it's just weird when we look at these last few drafts, 
you know, <laughs> look, the best player in the league is Patrick Mahomes. Wasn't the first pick. Nobody right. was talking about Patrick Mahomes as a generational player uh, at that point in time. You look at Lamar Jackson being the 32nd pick. He follows up with an MVP of his own. And, and we look at this year's draft. Um, the third quarterback that's been picked has been Herbert, who's been arguably the, the, the most impressive of the bunch. So I, I think uh, just kind of slow down. We can slow down on that. I, I actually think the story of this draft, some drafts like Andrew Luck, that was his, his story. It was the Andrew Luck draft. This year, I, I think there's a chance we're talking about this as a quarterback draft, really. I think we've got a chance to have those three with him and Fields and Lance. And we've got this kid from BYU who I haven't done any homework on yet, but who talking to friends around the league telling me that they're really excited about him. So I'm, uh, I'm anxious to see him. Um, maybe we've got a, a, a situation where we've got four quarterbacks going in the top ten. Who knows? Yeah, and there's enough quarterback needy teams you know, who will be up there who will probably uh, be, uh, be taking them. Uh, would it shock you? There's some, you know, the fear of the Jet fan is that they get the number one pick and they want to take Lawrence, but he he refuses. You know, he pulls an Eli and says, yeah. uh-uh, I ain't, yeah. I ain't going. Did you see something like that happening? I can't. I mean, just from what I know of him, um, I, I don't think that would be a move he would pull. And I, I think from the Jets standpoint, it would be a pretty easy sell. I mean, I think when you look at, at – Joe's background and the Super Bowls that he has he's got three Super Bowl rings. He's been around you know, a lot of winning, uh, winning football. He's shown through last year's draft. At least you can look at Makai and say, okay, he knows what he's doing. He's, he's going to get a chance to build around me. And you look at all the resources they have with draft picks and cash going forward. I think it would be a pretty easy sell to him and his camp. Um, hey, this thing can get turned around pretty quick. I, I think you could have made more of a case for Joe Burrow last year to maybe try and avoid the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, than you could make in this situation for Trevor Lawrence trying to avoid the Jets. Okay. So, so Daniel, so we got a lot of depressed Jet fans who are listening to this, you know, <laughs> for obvious reasons. I mean, they're, they're pretty bummed out at 0-7. What could you say, what players on the roster, you know, what about the organization? Maybe it's Joe, maybe it's the assets he has to give yeah. them hope. Where's the hope right now? Well, I mean, I, I think we've, we've talked about Becton a lot. I mean, that's a good piece. That's a premium position where you've got a, you've got a big-time guy. I'm, I'm still very optimistic about Quentin Williams. I think you saw him play the other day. He played really well. I think the San Francisco game earlier this year, you're starting to see glimpses of what he can do and just being a really disruptive interior player. And that's a, that's, those guys are hard to find. You try and find somebody that can be an interior pass rusher that can get you, you know, seven, eight, nine sacks potentially. He's still really young. Um, so I think there's hope there with him on the other side of the ball to give you somebody you can build around. Um, in the short term, you know, it's not going to be a long-term deal, but if you look in the short term, be able to get C.J. Mosley back at the second level of your defense next year, that, that'll make a difference. Um, you know, Mims, as we talked about, that, that gives you a playmaker there. If they can ever get all these guys healthy on the same field at the same time, I mean, you've got Crowder, who's a good little slot receiver. You put Mims out there. Um, you know, that gives you a little bit of hope there, but I mean, I can't, I can't pump sunshine and, and create all these imaginary players to give you much more beyond that because they're, this roster is void of them. So there's a lot of work to be done. This is definitely, there's definitely an under construction sign out front. Yeah. But they do have 18 draft picks over the next two drafts. And I think yep. maybe nine of them might be in the first three rounds so they definitely have – and they, I think they're going to have about $100 million in cap room this yeah. next offseason. Uh, you know, the cap actually could drop, but the Jets are in pretty good shape, you know, flexibility-wise. I mean, Rich, you look at it, right? You could have 
let's say that the scenario that we talked about, that they get the first pick, which the only thing I would be worried about about the Jets is when you look at the standings, man, we've got another six or seven teams, I think, right, with one win. Right. And then you get into the strength of schedule, right? And then that, that, yeah. that would, you know, might fall into a win here. Be careful. Um, yeah. but, uh, but there's a chance now if you, if you had the first overall pick, I believe you get – I know I believe Schefter said you wouldn't be able to get a one for Sam. I, I believe you would. I think you would absolutely get a one. For, for some of those teams, good established teams with veteran quarterbacks, when you look at Pittsburgh, you look at New Orleans, um, look at Indianapolis, those teams are all going to be picking towards the bottom of the first round. And I would even throw San Francisco in there just because I don't buy that, that Shanahan's in love uh, with what he has there with Jimmy Garoppolo. So you're going to have options, I believe, to get a late one for Sam. If that's what, if that's what happens, if, uh, if you end up with the first overall pick, you're going to you have four of the top 33 picks in the draft. I mean, yeah. you get a lot better real quick. Yeah, that is an amazing uh, – that's, that's a good treasure chest of uh, draft picks to start yeah. To start with, and you're obviously a big believer in Joe. You've seen him for, I guess you guys have known each other for probably almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah, we have it. I always, I'm always uh, nervous. Anytime I tweet anything about the Jets or have any type of uh, opinion on the Jets, I almost feel like I need to have like a disclaimer that says my opinion, my opinion only. I'm not, I'm not Joe's mouthpiece. He's never, he's not trying to get some information or some message out through me, but I think that's how Twitter works, right? You get uh, kind of the conspiracy theorists that, that put that stuff together. So that's just, that's just my opinion. Well, that's great. And we appreciate those opinions. And for those fans out there, you definitely have to check out uh, Daniel on Twitter. And of course, before you know it, we'll be in draft season. Draft season is like almost year round now. And as soon as, as soon as the season's over from January through April, we'll be seeing a lot of you on TV. Yeah, I hope, I just hope we, we uh, get a chance to do it in person uh, this year. I think it's in Cleveland. So um, yeah. I don't know if we have any, if they're allowed to have any fans there at all, but doing the, uh, doing the draft last year, I did it rich with my swimsuit on and a coat and tie. I'd prefer, I'd prefer to wear pants this year. That's just my preference. Well, let's hope you can wear pants and let's hope we can get back to normal. And, and <laughs> as much as the, it was actually enjoyable to watch the way they did the draft last year with everybody in their home, as good yeah. as that was nothing beats the real draft. So yeah. let's hope we can get back to that. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And let's stay in touch down the road. Uh, we'll do it. And hopefully some better, uh, better days ahead for the Jets. Just got to fight your way through the rest of this one. And welcome back to the third quarter. It's Twitter mailbag time. And as I promised on Twitter, we're going to go with the top eight questions this week. And the first one is from at Steve Simon says, will Joe Douglas be able to pick the next coach or will Christopher Johnson step in? Clearly, Joe Douglas is going to have a big role in picking the next coach. But, of course, Christopher Johnson is going to take part in the interview process. And he has the final say, I would think. I would hope he would lean heavily on Douglas's recommendation. But let me ask this. How do we know it's Christopher Johnson? Maybe Woody Johnson's back from his uh, overseas gig and he's in control of the team. I think that is an issue the Jets will have to clarify for potential candidates when they start looking for a coach. Next one from Fahad Nazir. How many game-winning drives does Darnold have and how many fourth-quarter comebacks? Well, Fahad, he has four, uh, three fourth-quarter comebacks and four game-winning drives. And just to give you a little comparison, Josh Allen, drafted the same year as Darnold, has eight 
fourth quarter comebacks and 10 winning game-winning drives. So uh, a pretty big difference there. You know, when I talk to scouts and personnel people from around the league, they say the best way to evaluate a quarterback is in three different categories. Third down, red zone, and fourth quarter. Those are the money situations, the pressure situations. So I looked it up on our ESPN stats and information site, and here's how Darnold ranks since he's been in the league, since 2018, in each of those categories. Third down, in total QBR, he ranks 25th out of 35 quarterbacks. Red zone, he ranks 31st out of 35 quarterbacks. And fourth quarter, he ranks last, 35 out of 35. Food for thought there. Next one from at Garbs. If the Jets get the first pick, where would you trade Darnold? Uh, how about the Dallas Cowboys? Uh, so, no, I don't think the Cowboys would be a possibility. Certainly not this season. The Jets aren't going to trade Darnold this season. And next year, I do think that Dak Prescott will be back. Ideally, you would want to trade him outside the conference, you know, to a team like Washington or Chicago, who could be looking for long-term answers at quarterback. Within the conference, I think a team to watch would be Denver. If it doesn't work out with Drew Locke, I know for a fact that John Elway really likes Sam Darnold in the 2018 draft, and I think he would have taken him at number five if the, if the Jets hadn't taken him at three. And I also think Jacksonville could be an answer for Darnold. But again, this, this depends. These quarterback-needy teams will also be in position to take one of the college kids too. So a couple of variables there. Next one, at L. Jeffy8158. The biggest story no one is talking about is the greatest threat to Trevor Lawrence may be the Patriots. We could actually beat them based on the way the Patriots are playing. Good point. Two more games against the Patriots. They're not looking good. Can you imagine? Belichick screwed the Jets 20 years ago when he walked out on them. He could probably screw them for the next 20 by losing to the Jets, costing them Trevor Lawrence. That would be hilarious. Uh, next, from at Pizza IA, at C Pizza IA, rather. If the Jets don't get the number one pick and they stick with Sam, would they go with their next highest graded quarterback? Do they sign or trade for a veteran to compete with Sam? What do they do? Great, great, great questions. I think a lot of it is on how Sam plays for the rest of the year, how Joe Douglas evaluates the next two quarterbacks, which appear to be Justin Fields and Trey Lance. You know, does he see more upside in those two players or compared to what he could get with the veteran who would come in and compete with Darnold? There are so many variables, and it's really hard to answer at this point. Next, at MTB. DJC, should they hire an offensive or defensive-minded coach to replace Adam Gase? Here's what I think. A few year, a couple of years ago, I was on the offensive bandwagon that they needed an offensive guy to help develop Sam Darnold. Here's what I say now. Just hire the best leader. It doesn't matter what side of the ball he's on. Find a leader of men. And then you got to obviously hire a strong offensive staff because you're going to have a young quarterback, but hire the best leader. Two teams just fall into the trap of looking for a specific thing instead of keeping an open mind. And the Jets have certainly fallen uh, guilty to that. Next, at T underscore lost underscore world. Who do you think will be traded this week? Well, the trading deadline is November 3rd. 
And the two guys I think you got to keep an eye on are Bradley McDougal and Avery Williamson. They're both veterans, like mid to later part of their career on expiring contracts, and they both have younger guys behind them, especially McDougal. If you've noticed, Ashton Davis got more playing time on Sunday against, uh, you know, against Buffalo. And I think the Jets could make that move. McDougal's got about $2 million left on his contract. I'm sure they would love to get that off their payroll. Keep an eye on McDougal. The hot name is going to be Quinnen Williams because teams will be calling about him. I just don't think the Jets are going to move him. I, he shows some potential. He's just inconsistent. He shows some potential. I think they'd have to get a couple of really good high picks, like two twos, something like that, to move him. Next, from at E-E-K-N-W, I guess it's E-E-New, uh, what's the deal with C.J. Mosley's contract? Will he be traded in the offseason? C.J., of course, opted out during the COVID, COVID-19 window to opt out, and uh, no, they can't trade him. His contract tolls for a year, so everything gets pushed back. So he has $14 million in fully guaranteed money. That's paid out over 20 and 21. So, no, they're not going to be able to trade a linebacker who essentially hasn't played at all in two years with a contract that includes $14 million in fully guaranteed money. So he will be back with the Jets next year. And that's the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. You know, when the Jets are as big an underdog as they are this week in Kansas City, it always brings back a very, very special time, a special game that I covered when they were a prohibitive underdog. And one of the best games I've ever covered, even though it was a meaningless game, it was in 1992. We all call it the Dennis Bird game. The Jets went up to Buffalo. They were a 17-point underdog. They were a bad team, the Jets. They were 3-9 and nine going into that game. I think they had six or seven starters out with injuries. They had no business being on the field with the Bills, who were who were those great Bills teams. It was the, the Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas Bills, and they ended up going to a Super Bowl uh, that year. You know, it was a vintage team. But what happened that week, Dennis Bird was paralyzed. He broke his neck the week before, and he was in a hospital. And, you know, obviously that was a major, major national news story. And the Jets went into Buffalo really just in a state of depression. But on the, the night before the game, word started traveling through the team hotel that Bird had moved a toe, a single toe he moved in his hospital bed. And it just sort of sent a surge of electricity through the team. And by the time they got to the field on Sunday, they were really, really motivated and fired up. They played the game for him, and I'll be damned. The Jets upset the Bills that day, 24-17. to It was one of the most stunning games I've ever covered, and I've covered a lot. <laughs> Believe me, I've covered a lot. And I'll never forget the locker room, the postgame locker room. I went up to a tight end named Mark Boyer. It was just basically your journeyman type tight end. And I go, do you realize what you did today? You guys were a 17-point underdog. And I'll never forget what he said. Such a great quote. He said, you can't put a point spread on the human spirit. 
And I that quote always stuck with me. And and after the game, the players like jammed into this tiny little room at this in the stadium in the locker room, and they had a conference call with Dennis and in his hospital room, and they all told him how they won the game for him. And they sure enough, they went up to his hospital after the game you know, when they flew back to New York and they presented him the game ball. And it was such a cool moment. You know, you don't see stuff like that in sports that often. A team, a 17-point underdog. Now, the Jets went, went on to being bad for the rest of the year, but they had that little moment, and I'll never forget it. And I'm not saying the Jets are going to do that on Sunday against the Chiefs. Clearly, they don't have that kind of unique motivation but uh, and maybe they'll get blown out but when i think of lopsided games on paper i always think of that one just how you never know and that wraps up this week's podcast i want to thank everyone for stopping by especially our special guest daniel jeremiah of the nfl network thanks to producer jeff scopin please rate and subscribe to flight deck Get it anywhere you get your podcasts. Enjoy the game on Sunday, and we'll see you next week on Flight Deck.